Finishing up our series today, Godly Patterns for Ordinary People. This is the fifth week, uh, and, and then we're done, and we're starting into the next series next week. And we talked about making God's time your time. Uh, remember, redeem the time, number your days, and look for those God moments, those Kairos moments, uh, uh, making God's order your order, put things in the right place, keep it simple. Order is a means to an end, not the end, and make your bed. How many of you are making your bed every day now? Okay, that New Year's resolution <laughs> slipped away very quickly. Making God's strength your strength. Keep your spiritual heartbeat. Uh, be renewed daily. Let, let your trouble do the work and fix your eyes on the unseen. Keep your spiritual heartbeat. You know, the idea of those ecclesia moments, those gathering moments as a church can strengthen you. I hear there's a group that's just kind of impromptu getting together today after the, after the service for lunch or something. That's the type of thing where that encourages you. That, that's an ecclesia uh, moment. Um, uh, and making God's patience your patience. Don't pray for it. I hope you didn't pray for patience this week. But wait for it. And uh, grow your walk with God and patience will result. So today we're going to talk about God's math. Making God's math your math. How many of you like math or liked math when you were in school? How many of you couldn't stand it? Okay, so half and half. All right, so this, this past week a lot of the kids in high school had, had exams. And there's lots of stress around this, and, you know, they have to face the dreaded math exam. And, you know, some kids like it, and some kids loathe it. I don't know if you liked your math or you didn't like your math, but you're going to love God's math. And I want to teach you how to make God's math your math. It doesn't matter if you failed miserably in math class in school. You cannot fail when you're talking about God's math. And it's super, super simple. Anybody can pass the test with God's math, okay? Uh, so I'm going to give you um, uh, three kind of uh, formulas, if you will. Uh, you know, you have to memorize those formulas in, in math class, right? If you were like me, uh, I, I just need to admit this. Uh, what I would do is, is I would actually write some of those formulas down on this little piece of paper and kind of stick it in my desk, you see. And then when the test was on, all you have to do is go like that, and then you'd see the formulas, all right? The confessions of a pastor. I did do that. I did do that, okay? Uh, but I want to give you really easy formulas that, that, that work and that can transform your life as you make God's math your math. Are you ready for the first one? One plus one equals two. Can you remember that? One plus one equals two. Super, super easy formula. Very profound, I know. Uh, this, is the, this is addition. Addition. When you're a follower of Jesus, one plus one equals two. You, you're not just living your life yourself. You're living it with God as well. And you've got to remember that very, very simple formula. You're not doing life alone anymore. You're doing life with Jesus in your life. It's not just you anymore. Um, and there's several images for this in the scripture that we see. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul uses the image of a crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. One plus one equals two. He's not living his life alone anymore. He's living it through Jesus who lives in him. And Paul is very cognizant of this. As you read all the stuff that he wrote in the New Testament, he's very aware that it is God working through him as he lives his life and he does his thing. So many times, even people who are professed believers, they live their lives as if they have to carry God around, as if he's some, I don't know, some idol that you have to carry around in your back pocket. Like they carry around the weight of, of uh, their relationship with God as if it all depends on, on them as believers. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. You don't have to carry God, okay? Most of the time, God carries you, and you don't even realize uh, that he's doing it. But so many of us, we approach life, and it's all our own strength. It's all our own, our own way, our own ingenuity, our own energy, all this stuff. Well, remember, one plus one is two. You're not facing life alone. You have God in your life, and that makes all the difference. It doesn't mean that your life is going to get easier. It doesn't mean that your problems are going to go away. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be a bed of roses, but you have someone else in your corner, and you need to be aware that he's in your corner, and you can face life with him. I mentioned last week, uh, to you, uh, the, the funeral that took place, it actually took place on Sunday for my father, uh, who passed away last week on Thursday. And some of you who know me well, you know that the relationships were, you know, just, they're just not good. They're not good, uh, haven't been good for a number of years uh, in, my, in my immediate family. It was an extremely, extremely difficult uh, moment. It was a very, very difficult funeral. And, uh, but, you know, I realized even as I experienced that funeral on, on Sunday, um, and as people in this room were, were praying, you know, I realized one plus one equals two. Uh, because in that funeral, and funerals can be just very, very dark and very depressing moments. You know, it doesn't matter who's around, doesn't matter what family is around, they could just be very, very dark, very, very difficult moments. And in that particular funeral, uh, my father being Jewish, um, I don't think there were any Jewish rabbis, you know, in the town where he passed away. And so one of my brothers actually conducted the service. And he, he speaks Hebrew and he knows how to do, a, you know, kind of a simple uh, Jewish funeral service. So he conducted the funeral. And he read word for word from a number of psalms in the Old Testament. And they were, they were psalms that I had recently preached on, psalms that I had meditated on. And he had no idea of this. He was just doing his thing. And I just realized, God, it's one plus one equals two with you. You're, you're never alone when you have God in your life. He's with you even in the difficult moments, even in the darkest times. And some of you, you're going through times that are tough. You know, you put on a, maybe a good a good front with people, you know, you might come to a church like this, and every, oh yeah, hello, how are you, and all that, and you know, you got your tea, you got your coffee, but you're waiting to go home at the end, because there's difficulty, there's trouble, uh, it, it's tough, and there's things that you face that are very, very tough, uh, one plus one equals two, you, you're not alone. Uh, other images that are used in the scripture, we talked about this a bit uh, last week, uh, Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and the fruit from John chapter 15 uh, verses 1 to 8. I'll read this to you. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. 
Now, he's not speaking literally. This is an image that he's using. Um, He cuts off every branch in me like a gardener that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He, He snips it so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He's speaking to the apostles there. Remain in me and I also will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It's obvious, obvious uh, uh, illustration from gardening. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. If you, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and, and withers. Such branches, again, speaking of the metaphor here, are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you would bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In Christian circles, this, this passage is used to debate, believe it or not, whether or not a person can lose their, their salvation. And I, I've heard people take this passage and they use it to say, ah, you see, if you, if you don't remain in Christ, you'd be cut off and you'll be thrown into the fire. Ha ha, you can lose your salvation. And then the person on the other side of the coin says, no, 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 you, you're, you're being snipped, you're being pruned. And that is not the point of the passage. The, the point of the passage is that you're to remain in, in that vine on the left-hand side. You know, we're like that branch there that's, that's horizontal, and that vine there is like Jesus. And when we remain in that vine, we, we bear fruit. And this is the point of it. It's not meant to debate whether or not a person can lose their salvation. We're to remain in the vine, and then we bear fruit. And there is this pruning process that God puts us through. There is this snipping process. I don't know if any of you do gardening, but you know you have to prune it, right? I mean, I do a little bit of gardening with our little little garden in the front of our condo, and, you know, I have to prune those branches or else they don't bear any, any fruit. I have to cut them. I have to snip them. And sometimes God, the, the divine, like the divine uh, gardener, he will do a little bit of snipping in your life. He'll, he'll bring some moments that may feel, ooh, that stings, that's that tough moment. Well, he's snipping you a little so that you're going to bear more and more uh, uh, fruit. One plus one equals two. We're the branches. He is the vine. Another image that's used uh, in, the, in the scripture is that of a yoke. I'm not talking about uh, an egg yolk. I'm talking about uh, a yoke, which is uh, like a, an old-fashioned harness. If you go to the next picture, uh, that's a, that's a yoke that's referred to in the Bible. And you've got uh, you've got a couple of animals there, and you've got that harness that's around the two animals, and it yokes them together so that they can pull something. And you see the, the, the farmers there, and they're cultivating land. I'll show you another picture of, of a, a modern-day yoke. I took that in Africa uh, in the road from, uh, from Lusaka to Mangu in, in, uh, in Zambia. And these two guys are a bit lazy, so they made, they made a yoke, and uh, they've got these two animals pulling them. And I actually saw what happens when one of those two animals goes in the wrong direction and fights against the other one. The whole yoke, poof, breaks apart, and it just shatters. 
Uh, and oh no, we have to pick up all this stuff. And this is a yoke. This is the image that Jesus is going to use. But uh, he uses it with uh, probably an understanding of what people thought of yokes in his day. Um, Jeremiah talks about a yoke. If you show the next picture in the Old Testament prophet, he, he said that uh, the Babylonians would come and they would put a yoke uh, on the on the Israelites and uh, in Jeremiah 27 he puts a yoke on himself that kind of a harness to show that the Babylonians are coming um, uh, he says um, in Jeremiah 6 16 something interesting that Jesus said uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 11 come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest one plus one equals two take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 6 and 16, you will find rest for your souls. Interesting, sounds almost the same. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, he said to the people. And you will find rest for your souls. And Jesus said, Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and you will find rest for your souls. Paul talks about a yoke. Uh, that is an unequal yoke in the next slide. And here you've got two different animals. You've got an ox and a donkey. And in 2 Corinthians 6, he talks about being, uh, do not be unequally yoked. And often in Christian circles, we apply this to marriage. And we say, well, a Christian should not marry uh, a non-Christian because, you know, the Christian is the ox and the non-Christian is the donkey. I don't know what it's like in your marriage, who's the ox and who's the donkey. Uh, but if you take a couple of animals and they don't think alike and they don't have the same, you know, direction and you put those two together and you yoke them together, you're going to have problems. Like that ox and that donkey, I mean, they're, they're thinking two very, very different things. Um, the, the passage is more for you know, close relationships, perhaps business relationships, could apply to marriage, uh, but that's what he has in mind. Do not be unequally uh, yoked. Uh, Paul talks about the yoke of slavery in Galatians 5. Um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and don't let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Uh, this burden of uh, religion that you have to carry around. Um, Acts 15 talks about a yoke and uh, this, again, this idea of religion. And Peter is challenging this, this council at the city of Jerusalem. He says, why do you test God by putting on the necks of the disciples, the, the followers of Jesus, a yoke that neither we or our fathers have been able to bear? No, it's by grace that we're saved through faith just as they are. This yoke of religion is a bad thing. And yet Jesus talks about, he says, take my yoke upon you, for, uh, for I, my burden is easy, my yoke is light, and you will find rest for your souls. If you go to the next image, that yoke that Jesus wants us to put on is an easy one. He's not going to fight against you. He's, he's going to help you walk that path. One plus one equals two. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You see this phrase uh, in the book of Acts. You know, God did things through them. 
through the apostles, through the first followers of Jesus, one plus one equals two. It's the first formula. Don't forget it. Are you ready for the next one? Really easy stuff, okay? Two times two equals four. Very profound, I know. Two times two equals four. This is the principle of multiplication. So God doesn't only add, it's not only one plus one equals two, but God is a big fan as we look in the scripture of multiplication. He likes to increase things, but he, he likes to increase them so much that you can't use addition to count it anymore. You've got to use multiplication to count it. Again, in the book of Acts, uh, we see this term increased rapidly. Something increased rapidly. Usually it's the growth of these believers increased rapidly. The first First church problem that we see in the book of Acts in the very early church uh, in Acts chapter 6, you've got, um, you've got a complaint that's going on, a very, very serious complaint. You've got these, these Gentile, non-Jewish, Greek Christians, and uh, they're very upset, and they go to the, the head honchos there, the apostles, and they say, we're really upset because our widows are not getting as much food as the Jewish Christians are. Seems like there's a little bit of favoritism going on, and we don't like it. And so the apostles, they meet together there, and they make a decision. They tell these people, they say, okay, you pick seven people from among you who can handle this whole thing, who can distribute this food in an equitable fashion so that we can do our thing and we can preach the word because we can't do both of these things. So you pick seven people from among you to solve the problem. And so they pick all these people. They all have Greek names, and they present them to the apostles, the head honchos, and they say, let's pray for these people. Let's lay hands on them and commission them to take care of the problem. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. This is what happens. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples, the number of followers of Christ in Jerusalem increased rapidly. It multiplied. Because they did something with an understanding that one plus one equals two. We're not doing this alone. This is a God thing. God has to be involved in this. Let's do it right. Let's, let's find the people. Let's commission them. Let's pray for them. And what happens? Multiplication starts. The, the people increase rapidly. The, you can't even count the, 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 the people who are starting to come to faith. Even a large number of priests, it says, uh, become obedient to the faith. This is multiplication. This is what God does. Uh, perhaps the greatest example in the scripture, most well-known uh, maybe, is the feeding of 5,000 uh, people, men, plus women and children, that Jesus did uh, in the gospel story. The, the, we're told that it's women and children plus 5,000, so it's probably in the area of a minimum of 10,000 people, probably more like 15,000, could be even more. I mean, you might even be looking at a crowd the size of the Bell Center uh, that Jesus fed uh, on that day. It's a marvelous story of multiplication. Um, we see the disciples uh, told by Jesus to rest after a period of ministry in the, in the province of Galilee. They get in the boat, they reach the shore, only to find that there's this huge crowd of people waiting to hear from Jesus. He goes ashore, Mark 6, verse 34, sees this great crowd has compassion on them because it says they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send these people away to go into the countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. And Jesus turns to them. And he says, you give them something to eat. And they say to him, well, 
what are we supposed to do? You know, shall we go and buy uh, 200 denarii worth of, of, uh, of bread? This is like several months' wages of bread and give it to them to eat? Like, wh- what are you saying? And he says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Uh, go and see. And so they go and they come back and they say, we got five loaves and two fish. What are you going to do now? You know, a little bit of sarcasm in their answer. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups. He puts them in hundreds. He puts them in fifties. He takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. He breaks the loaves. He gives them to the disciples to set before the people. And he, and he divides the two fish among them all. And the scripture says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they even uh, took 12 basketfuls of leftovers of broken pieces uh, and the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, Matthew says, besides women and children. What do we see in this story briefly? Well, Jesus, in a sense, creates the problem. He, he teaches late, almost on purpose. And then there's this problem where all these people need to eat food. Like in the first century, in that time, in that culture, that's a big deal. There's a serious problem. And he didn't have to teach late, but he teaches late. And uh, his disciples say, "Uh, excuse me, we have a problem and it's late. And we've got a big crowd here. These people are going to get upset. What are we going to do now? Oftentimes in our lives, a bit like the pruning process, you know, God can create a need. He can, he can push circumstances a certain way, and all of a sudden you say, wow, I'm, I'm in a bit of a corner here. And he does this so that you, you show your trust in him, and so, so that you will show uh, faith in him. You often maybe have found yourself crying out to God, God, what are you doing? What are you doing to my life? You're making my life trouble. Why are you doing this? He, he's doing this because he wants you to trust him even though that pruning process may hurt, even though he's teaching late into the night, as it were, he wants to create that need sometimes. And the disciples, they say, well, you know, we want a human answer to this need. Make an announcement, Jesus, they all listen to you. Make an announcement, send them away to the hillside and the villages and let them get something to eat. This is a human solution. But God is interested in multiplication, Uh, they're interested in purely a human answer. And then Jesus turns the table on them and he says, well, you give them something to eat. Well, this is an impossible thing, right? They've got, they go and they find this little boy's lunch and he's got five loaves and, and two fish. And they say, well, what are we supposed to do now, Jesus? This is all we have. When it's all you have, God can multiply it. God can do things with the little that you have that would blow your mind. If you just offer it to him, it doesn't matter how small it is, it matters that you offer it to him. And then he's interested in multiplying. I mean, you've got bad odds there. You've got five loaves and two fish. You've got a crowd the size of something like the Bell Center, if you've ever been there. Pretty bad odds. Almost as bad as the Patriots in tomorrow night's game. Okay. I just You heard it from me first. I'm no prophet. But, uh, you know, next week we will be... We'll be having a discussion of how the Falcons beat them by 14, okay? Um, so anyway, uh, these are bad odds. Well, do you think your odds are bad with God? He, he's, a, he's a God of multiplication. He can take what you have, 
and he can use it and he can do things that you won't even know what they are until later on. You won't even see what they are until later on. And he does this in kind of an interesting way in this miracle. He uses the natural and the divine at the same time. I mean, you, you, it, it happens so naturally that the, the food multiplies that it isn't even described for us. You read the narrative and you're like, but how? How did it multiply? And it doesn't say. As if it happened so naturally that it was almost naturally supernatural. But this is the way that God works. And he even, he even organizes it. He puts them in 50s and 100s and 10s and all this stuff. He gives the food to the disciples. He says, you hand it out. You hand it out, and it just got more and more and more and more, and all the people were satisfied, and all the people were fed, because when you give the thing that you have to God, he can do incredible things with it. I've had people who've come to me years, months, years after something that I, I crossed paths with them. I've had people come to me, and they say, I just want to thank you for, for praying for me. I got that job, you know, and I say, I look at them and say, Okay, what job was that? And they say, well, you, you prayed for me, you know, it was six months ago or whatever, and I just want you to know I got that job. Remember, you told me to, act, to, to come to you to tell, me, tell you what happened. I said, well, I forgot, but I believe you. Well, thank you. Thank you for praying for me because I got that job. Thank you for praying for me. We had that baby. You know, thank you for praying for me. Uh, my knee was healed. I mean, I've literally had people who come up to me and say that, and I can't even remember when I prayed for them, when I met them, whatever. This is the way that God works. Like when your life intersects with somebody and you do something for that person in the name of Jesus, you have no idea the impact that that makes. Some of you, 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 you have these, these ways of doing these acts of kindness and generosity to people and you keep it very, very quiet and it's, it's between you and God. Let me tell you, the impact that you make when you do things like that is massive. It has a way, God has a way of multiplying what you do as long as you're willing to give him the little that you have. He is very willing and very able to multiply your efforts. He's a God of multiplication. And finally, the last, the last formula for you to remember, really profound stuff, really, really simple stuff, okay? Jesus plus resurrection equals eternal life. This one's not numbers, all right? So you, you may have to take your phone and take a little picture of that. Jesus plus resurrection equals eternal life. Take that plus sign there and think of a cross. Maybe that will help you. That's the gospel story in a nutshell. Jesus plus resurrection equals eternal life. We have the life of Jesus, holy, blameless, uh, uh, born in a supernatural way into this world, God in the flesh, going to a cross to pay the penalty for our sin and then rising physically from the dead. And now the greatest math formula of all, all of humanity is able to experience eternal life now because one person went to the cross at one time and rose from the dead once in history. We now have access to eternal life. It's the greatest math formula of all. Jesus plus resurrection equals eternal life, and it won't work if you only have part of it. If you only have Jesus and you have no cross, it doesn't work. If you only have Jesus and a cross, but you have no resurrection, it doesn't work. If you only have the resurrection, 
but, the, but Jesus didn't die on a cross. He died some other way. It doesn't work. You have to have Jesus going to the cross as a, as a substitute, a penal, uh, vicarious atonement for our sins and rising from the dead. And you have the recipe, you have the formula, if you will, for salvation, for a transformed life. And this is what we celebrate when we have communion. You probably have these, these little emblems that you got on the way in. We'll do that in a few moments. But this is what we acknowledge Jesus plus resurrection equals eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I don't care what you've done in this room. I don't care how far you think you are from God. He has atoned for your sin. He has paid the price for your sin. He knows every single detail of your life and he's waiting to come into your life and cover you with that sacrifice and transform your life not only for our sins but the sins of the whole world romans 4 and 25 he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification god looks at us in, in a judicial sense and says you now are clean legally in my eyes I've been watching with great interest the political situation, uh, as I'm sure you have, and uh, you know the, the new president and the, the executive order, and now you have a judge who's come in, and the judge has said, not so fast, and there's been an injunction, and all of our eyes are riveted to the news stations to see what has happened next, what's going to happen next. It's interesting to study the law in this matter. Well, God looks at us legally as clean. He can say, you are now justified as if you have never sinned. I look at you as clean. And you can go to sleep with a clean conscience because God, when he comes into your life, he cleans your soul. And he transforms you. He's raised to life for our justification. John chapter 1 verse 12. To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can call upon God not as some distant figure, but as your father. One who can clean you up. One who can completely transform your life. Jesus plus resurrection equals eternal life. Two times two is four, and one plus one is two. Three simple formulas that can completely transform your life. I'd like the band if they would...